Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the enigma of alien contact. My guest is Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith. You may remember a recent interview with her about her book, Voices from the Cosmos. In fact, I'm going to link to that interview right now. If you haven't already seen it, you might wish to see it. Today, we're going to focus on another earlier book of hers called Diary of an Abduction, A Scientist Probes the Enigma of Her Alien Contact. In addition, Angela has also written Seer, 30 Years of Remote Viewing, as well as Tactical Remote Viewing, Remote Perceptions, Out-of-Body Experiences, Remote Viewings, and Other Normal Abilities. She's been active in the remote viewing field for a very long time and is one of the founding directors of the International Remote Viewing Association. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video with my old friend, Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith. Welcome, Angela. I'm happy to see you once again. Thank you. I'm happy to be back again. <laughs> We're going to talk about events that you have been documenting in your own life now for quite a few decades. Uh, your book, Diary of an Abduction, uh, goes back uh, to the late 1980s. And I have to imagine, even though the book was published 20 years ago, that you continue to keep uh, a good record of uh, the, the events that you describe. Yeah, I'm a I'm a journal writer. Uh, I don't write every day, but every now and again, I'll do a catch up. And uh, so I have files, I have tubs of journals <laughs> going back uh, decades. To summarize, the, the gist of your book is, is that uh, in the 1980s, you began to suspect, based on uh, many popular accounts of UFO-related abductions that uh, this had been part of your own life. And you began a dream journal and other other forms of journaling. You attended many conferences. And, and you arrived at the conclusion that you have been uh, subject to these kinds of abduction experiences throughout, I'd have to say, most of your life. Right. Uh, up until the the late 1980s, um, I had had multiple various, multiple different kinds of um, experiences and just put them on a back burner because there was nothing to explain these experiences. So I put them down to just being personal experiences, um, except for the one when I was 16, which I'll go into a little later. My brother was 13. Um, but in the late 1980s, I attended a, a workshop uh, with a talk by a local lady, and she started explaining about her experiences. And I went, wow, she, she might be telling, she could be telling my story. So then I started my own search and um, my own exploration of my own experiences. Well, let's talk about the experience that occurred when you were 16. That seemed to be kind of a, a, a milestone in this story. 
Yeah, because my brother also experienced it. Um, he was 13 at the time, and we had moved down from Bristol to Dorset um, that December, previous December, and it was the biggest snow snowstorm of the century. <laughs> um, but by the spring, um, we were settled into the house. It was uh, a, a semi-detached house. There was a long garden, a meadow at the back, and a brook. Um, very pleasant. It was down in um, a place called Stape Hill, just outside of Wimborne in Dorset. And uh, we used to talk. He would go, we'd both go up to bed and he would be in his room, I would be in my room. And we'd talk about the day in school and various things until mum shouted up the stairs, go to sleep. Uh, and uh, one night we were talking just as we usually do. And suddenly our rooms were filled with this intense light. And I said to Alan, what's that? And he, he looked out the window. He's a bit braver than me. And uh, he said, something landed in the meadow. It's a UFO. And I went, under the bedclothes. <laughs> and even with the heavy bedclothes, um, the light still came through. It was that intense. And I kept asking him, what's happening? What's happening now? And he said, well, there's something creatures... And he, he didn't know what to call them, you know. He said, they've come out and they're walking around. And um, so we continued like this, me asking him questions. And they I believe at that time they just stayed in the meadow. And then, poof, the light was gone. The light was out. And I remember going, just nothing more. I went back to sleep. We asked our parents, we asked our neighbours, did they see the light last night? Nobody else noticed the light. And it wasn't that late, it was like 10-ish. And um, it was one of those weird, my brother and I talked about it for years afterwards. In 2009, when I went to England for six months, because I wanted to see if I could, uh, you know, retire there or if I wanted to retire there or what I wanted to do with the rest of my life um, I was down in, um, in Dorset again in living in Wimborne for the six months and I befriended a couple he was an investigative journalist and um, I started telling him we were talking about all sorts of anomalies and uh, he was very interested and he, we talk, started talking about UFOs and I said well I had an experience locally and we talked about it and he said, well, that's interesting. So um, I had written it up and I gave him a copy. I had a copy then of um, Diary of an Abduction that I got for him. And uh, after a bit, uh, when I came back to England, he contacted me with a book that he'd written called Paranormal Dorset. And it was about Wimborne and around the area of Dorset. And... Um, I'm not going to hold it up, but I'll just just tell you about it. Um, he wrote a chapter called um, Close Encounters, the Stape Hill Triangle. And it seems that particular area was up, almost like um, a Bermuda Triangle for sightings. I had no idea about that when I told him my experience. So he started doing, as he was an investigative journalist, um, you know, this is um, Roger Guttridge, uh, the author, and uh, he found six events um, within a few years of Alan and my experience. Uh, not exactly the same, 
but similar. So that was some validation for me that we really had experienced something real. Subsequently, uh, you made a decision that you were going to explore the possibility that you had uh, a history of alien contact uh, by doing a dream analysis. Yes, yeah. When I when I had gone to that meeting and listened to those other ladies' experiences, I thought, should I go and get some um, hypnotic re re regression? I thought, no, because I want to start unwrap, if this is a real thing, because I was still very skeptical at that time about my own experiences. I don't want it all to be unraveled in a couple of uh, interviews or, or sessions. I want to do this slowly at my own pace. And I'm going to, first of all, do my own uh, investigation. So I decided um, I would instruct my subconscious so if there really was something there, it would come out in some of my dreams. Um, I would also do a memory search, a meditative memory search, looking back. And uh, other, you know, looking back through old journals, etc. And when things started coming up, I was, I wrote them all down. I kept journals about what I was perceiving. And I made a mistake in Diary of an Abduction about calling my dreams, um, normal dreams, and the, um, the abduction recall, real dreams, because people loved them all together when they were reading it. They said, oh, this is all just dreams, but it wasn't. There were certain dreams that were very real, and those were the ones that were the most valuable to me. So by real dream, I assume that you, you don't necessarily mean lucid dreams. No, this was a, a recollection, a flashback dream of uh, an event. And, and they seem real to you because you recognize that something really happened. Yeah, because it kind of tied in with um, some real events. And of course, our dreams are a mishmash of all sorts of things. So I couldn't rely on them totally. But they, the dreams gave me, or the flashback dreams gave me cues or clues of where to go next, what next to explore. And, and I think it's also important in your story to understand that back in the 1980s, when uh, you began this exploration, you, you also started working as a uh, research associate at a parapsychology laboratory. In fact, one of the major laboratories in the country at that time. Yeah. And, um, I did share my explorations with them, but of course that wasn't their main um, research thrust, so um, it was tolerated. <laughs> and I learned not to share too much. Um, I was sharing a house with one of the principals, and um, we had some shared experiences where um, we kept finding this liquid on shelves and places that were too high for a person. Um, you know, this oily, musky, cinnamony kind of, um, I don't want to call it ectoplasm because it wasn't ectoplasm. Um, but um, there were some shared experiences, including one where one night we had a shared experience. I was sleeping upstairs at one end of the house. My, my roommate was downstairs at the other end of the house. 
And when we both met up in the morning, we both had a scab, a bloody scab over the throat. And we looked at each other and went, boy, those mosquitoes are a nuisance. <laughs> and we said, well, neither of us had any um, idea what this was. But for both of us to end up with that same wound, and it was just, it was large. It wasn't just a print prick. This was like a, a scab. And um, so we just kind of joked about it, about, joked about mosquitoes, <laughs> which was really f funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. Now, to follow up on that, recently I went to go, I went to get some ultrasound um, tests. These were just um, me going, part of my benchmark, because if I find anything wrong with them, then I'd go and get tested again by a medical professional. But um, I went and part of it was a, a thyroid uh, scan, ultrasound scan, and it showed up a little nodule, showed up a little nodule there, um, just one, you know, just really tiny. And um, I asked the, the um, technician, I said, what do you think that is? She said, I don't know. I haven't seen anything like that, but I'm going to put it in the record anyway. You can go get it checked out if you want. But I think that was something from, that was a scar maybe from way back when we had the, that uh, experience. Throughout your book, there are numerous occasions in which you, you have these, as you call them, real dreams, and then you wake up in the morning and, and you have various scars and marks on your body that weren't there the day before. Right. I, I think there were ongoing current interventions, I call them interventions, rather than abductions, because that's a loaded term. And I would really like to see another term brought in. Um, my colleague Scott Jones calls it catch and release. <laughs> um, but I would have puncture marks over a vein in the hand. I'd have bruises. I would have all sorts of odd marks, unusual marks, triangular marks, uh, square marks, linear marks, marks between my ribs uh, that weren't there the day before. And I'd just been in bed sleeping at night by myself. That led you to conclude, I presume, that basically some, uh, let's you call them the visitors, have been using you as, mm -hmm. as an experimental subject of some sort, taking biological samples. That was one of the possibilities. Uh, I used to have a, a lovely friend. Um, I call her Maria Fogger in the book. <clears throat> and... Uh, she said she had the rule of six. For every event that's unexplainable, you can find at least six explanations. And if you can find six, you could probably find 60. So I always used to go by this rule of six, that abductions of or somebody coming in and messing with me at night was just one of those explanations until <laughs> one night uh, we had a visitor at the house where I was staying at when I was at the pair lab. And... Um, she slept in my room and I slept in the little living room on the futon. And she came down in the morning um, very shocked and she said, what was that happening at night? And uh, I'd heard noises in the night and so had the house, the house owner. But uh, we just didn't bother looking. 
and this uh, this lady had got up out of bed to go to the bathroom and there were two little creatures standing in the middle of the carpet that she said looked like gargoyles their faces looked like gargoyles and as and she said to them what do you want and at that they they looked towards the other room where i was and then disappeared and just went and that really shocked her and my housemate decided that she would, um, after the visitor had left, she would sleep in that room and tell them off. <laughs> and tell them, don't come back. This is not, you know, this is not your place. But she never said if she actually saw them. So that was a confirmation. That really shocked me because up to that point, I had I was able to put all these experiences into a box that it could be real, it might not be real, perhaps it is. And when she saw them, and she didn't know my story, she didn't know my history. When she saw them, that was a confirmation for me, and it shocked me. Well, I remember back in those years, there there was a great deal of talk about UFO abductions. There were conferences, there were books being written. John Mack's book uh, became a bestseller, and uh, you became... Uh, according to your own diary there, very, very active in the uh, community of uh, UFO researchers looking into these things. Right. I was looking for answers. And um, so I went to conferences. I read books. I talked to people, um, uh, just interacted whenever I could. But what um, dismayed me <laughs> was the infighting in the groups. And that's, I wrote about that in the books. I was very surprised. Here were people who were professionals, um, you know, some credentialed. And um, they were like the leaders in the field. And they were all in fighting each other. And um, so I opted out for several, several of those organizations and uh, individuals and uh, decided just to continue with my own exploration. One of the things you write about is a conflict between uh, therapists who are working with people who believe themselves to have had alien contact or interventions or even abductions, uh, as opposed to researchers. There appeared to be real hostility between these two groups. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And as I say, that... that um dismayed me because I was looking for answers and here they were fighting over the material and um, and how it should be approached. Um, so I, I decided to do my own, continue my own explorations. It's worth getting into this conflict a, a little bit because it, it raises some questions about how do we get at the truth here? Uh, the therapists, many therapists, not just for alien abductions, but for a wide range of phenomenon having to do with uh, sexual abuse, for example, or satanic rituals. Many therapists uh, subject their patients to uh, hypnosis, and under hypnosis, patients uh, recall or believe they are recalling all sorts of episodes, and then the researchers would tend to say, well, as, as a hypnotist, you can uh, plant suggestions. So that was one of the reasons I didn't want to go to a hypnotherapist as well. I'd heard of at least one 
researcher who I will not name, um, that he had been leading, leading his uh, uh, patient subjects. And um, I finally found somebody in Princeton that uh, I felt I, I didn't want anybody recommended to me. I suppose I was a little paranoid at this point. And uh, I'm not a paranoid person. And um, uh, a wonderful woman in Princeton. And um, I went to her for three sessions but I really wasn't getting anything more than I was getting through my own explorations. And so that, that was the limit of the, the hypnosis. And she didn't ask leading questions. In fact, I kind of kept a lot from her so that she wouldn't. Um, and then a, a colleague of mine went to her as well. And um, I think she had some good experiences with her. One of the episodes that you write about in Diary of an Abduction, you also wrote about uh, in your book, Voices from the Cosmos, uh, and we talked about it in our previous mm -hmm. interview. It, it was an effort you made to have a kind of deliberate uh, communication with one of these visitors who, whom you described as the wise one. Yes, yeah, this was... Um it was on a whim at first. I thought, why don't I just ask them who they are? <laughs> um, so I did a meditation and um, I was quite on my own. The house was quiet and I, I put out a request for to talk to somebody. And what appeared in my um, visualization, I didn't see it, see the uh, entity myself, just in, or in, just in visualization. And it was the most ugly thing. <laughs> and um, we met in what was a we termed as a neutral space. It was a, a woodland and met a visual woodland. And um, I put out my hand and he put out his hand <laughs> in, in quotes. And we both exclaimed how ugly each other's hands were. <laughs> Which was, I said, let's be honest from the start. <laughs> And um, then we, we talked about all sorts of things, including time, the concept of time and how the alien concept of time is alien. It's very, very different. Um, our, our concept, our accepted Western concept of time is linear. Theirs is more lateral or undefined. So um, that was interesting. And I kept giving examples of what we considered time. Um, the ticking of a clock, uh, a sundial, um, etc. And they said, "No, you're just you're just measuring the ticking of the clock. You're measuring the 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 length, the rotation of the sun around the Earth. That's not time." So it was it was very interesting to get this other viewpoint. This communication uh, was the beginning of really what led to uh, the ongoing communications that we previously discussed and are recorded or reported in your book, Voices from the Cosmos. Uh, but your, your book, Diary of an Abduction, ends, and of course, it was, you say, it was published in 2001, uh, but I have to presume these uh, interventions uh, continued after that? For many, many years. Um, even when I moved out here to Las Vegas from um, New Jersey, and um, I continued writing down as, you know, if it was a, a noteworthy <laughs> event. And um, I also talked with other people who had experiences. 
And um, it was, I had heard that as women went into the menopause, I'm not sure about the guys, but with women, that the interventions ease off. And that actually happened with me in my 50s. And I was a little disappointed because I got used to these guys coming around. Um, I had lost the fear. I had a great deal of fear in the beginning, but by the 50s, I lost that fear. And um, I kind of missed them. And they, they still came around occasionally. And I, then I was able to help other people with their experiences to talk. About. And that's when I wrote up um, you know, the Diary of an Abduction in 2001. So you mean by that time, the experiences were already starting to diminish? Right, right. And I asked a few people who'd been through that process, and they said they thought it had to do with the the concept of um, the greys, um, one race of ETs, um, creating hybrids. And as women age, of course, they're not so useful for that process. Well, there are many reports in the uh, contactee literature of women who feel they they were pregnant and then uh, something happened and and the pregnancy disappeared and and oftentimes there I've I've heard women talk about that they they are introduced in some sort of a uh, intervention to a, a child a hybrid child which is their child and they're asked to provide some nurturing for that child. I I had similar experiences. I think there were probably about three times where I thought I was pregnant. Um, and didn't come to anything. Um, it wasn't medically diagnosed as pregnancy because it hadn't. They didn't go very long. Um, it's quite possible. And then I, I didn't have miscarriages, <laughs> which you would expect. And I did have the experiences where I was introduced to um, small hybrid infants. And um, there were some cases. There was one where I was asked about feeding an infant in one of these um, explorations. And um, I noticed that they, they had a, a regular Western bottle with a, a little uh, nipple on the end, but the infant was having a really hard time um, drinking from it. And I said, you need to make the hole bigger. So they went and cut off the top of the nipple and it flooded the poor infant the poor hybrid infant, and it was like, no. <laughs> so there was some miscommunications, and I explained about how infants needed to be held. They have to be held. I've, I've worked in, I, I was a nurse and social worker and worked with infants, and so I have a background in that, uh, that field. So for me, it was very frustrating to see these little infants just lying on the ground or in a little baby seat, and uh, just not nothing being done for them. Would you regard it as a, an experience that took place in regular 3D uh, space that we normally conceive of, as opposed to being in, in some sort of altered state of consciousness or dreamlike reality or astral plane? I think there are different kinds of experience. Some were very physical, where I came away with physical marks. And the remembrance of it, the dream remembrance, or the, even the wake when I woke and remembered what might have happened, um, those were very physical. 
there were some, I think, that were interdimensional or astral plane because I, I've had out-of-body experiences since I was a child. So I know some of them I, I recognized as that kind of an event. Um, so there are, you can't say it's one thing or another. Some people say, well, it's just interdimensional. It's just astral plane. It's purely physical. I don't think it's any of the, you know, it's all of those. Now, another aspect of, of your book, a really fascinating aspect, is what you call, um, as I recall, abduction one and abduction two. <laughs> right, right. As I started doing my own research, um, I came across the concept that perhaps because the U.S. government, U.S. military don't know what this is, or maybe they do, but they don't want to say, they also have their own programs in place. Um, some people call them my labs or military abductions. Um, I like to just call them one and two because there are differences between them. Abduction one, which is the, the ET type abduction, is there are some very, very, um, some of them are researched um, that the, the ETs are not interested in our um, our heart or our pulmonary system. Um, they have very specific uh, goals. And, uh, and there are certain um, tables, rooms, environments. They're very much abduction one. Abduction two is what we would think of as the military government abduction. And I can understand that happening, even though I don't like it, um, that uh, this might be um, you know, it's not with permission. It's not with consent. Uh, but there are also, there are very human um, gurneys, mattresses, blankets, equipment, etc. So the two can be, there are some overlaps, but they, they can be differentiated. Now, I know for certain in the community of contactees, there are people who are convinced that it's actually the U.S. military conducting surveillance and, and abductions in order to learn more about what the alien abductions are, are about. Is, is that the viewpoint that you subscribe to? Yes, yes. Um, because I've also talked to some folks in the field <laughs> and... Uh, I can't name names. I can't. I haven't written about that, um, but there have been some key people that I've talked to that uh, have that. Um, that gives some credence to that. Well, there are many stories out there suggesting that at least at some level of the so-called deep state or military, uh, there are people who really do know a great deal about uh, UFO contact and 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 what is going on. You know, I worked with the Bigelow Foundation for some time. And uh, again, I talked to a lot of people, not just individuals, regular individuals, but people in the parapsychology field, the alternative energy field, alternative health field, the, um, eat the um, you know, UFO field, went to conferences. And, um, and I kept seeing the same patterns time and time again. And people calling up the, the foundation, the Bigelow Foundation. I remember one very distraught lady who called and she said, um, I was pregnant. I was six months pregnant and now I'm not. And there's no, and they, they scanned me and there's no infant. 
Now, there is a concept that perhaps the body absorbs the fetus in some cases, but not a six-month fetus. You know, that's, um, it was gone, and she was very distraught. So I had to sort of put my own concepts aside and just sort of comfort her and explain, you know, these, you know, what, what happens. Of course, you bring this up in the context of abduction one and abduction two. I am assuming that uh, in terms of hybrids and, and this sort of genetic uh, experimentation, that's not what the U.S. military uh, is engaged in if they are engaged in anything uh, along these lines. Right. If they are engaged, they're interested in information, um, biological samples, and I know of at least two labs in Manhattan that were um, received uh, samples such as this um, that uh, also added some credence to the concept. And then, of course, there was the Roper Report. Tell me about the Roper Report. Okay. When I first started working for uh, Mr. Bigelow, they had um, put together with the Roper organization a, a booklet, and they had... Um, on a Roper poll, they had inserted questions about the abduction process, not all in a clump, but in, but you know, scattered throughout the the interview. You know, being a, a, um, a psychologist, how that's done. And um, the information that came back was that there were a large proportion of the American population that had had experiences. That were that could be classified as abduction experiences, and what was interesting was because the concept was well, perhaps these are uneducated, um, unemployed, attention seekers, people who are along the sort of um, just scraping by, and they need a little attention in their life, so they kind of fabricate something. But what the Roper report found was um, they have a group. Um, a sociological group that they study within American society called the Influential Americans. And the Influential Americans were had the highest number of abduction experiences, which was very interesting. These were highly educated, highly employed, um, very logical people. <laughs> As I recall, um, now that you bring it up, uh, the report suggested that maybe as many as one out of every 50 individuals uh, had uh, such an experience. Right, right. Now, this, the report, the Roper Report, was sent out, I think it was like 5,000 mental health professionals to educate them if they had people coming into their office, you know, that this was a, might be a possibility. And at one time, this seemed to be a, a very serious syndrome that was being looked at by multiple uh, mental health professionals uh, uh, with all sorts of theories and angles as, as to what this could be. And, and of course, Dr. John Mack at Harvard University, a, a psychiatrist, wrote about it. And uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, Harvard University launched an investigation to see whether they needed to remove him from uh, his position there. I think they did for a short time, and then they they had him back on again. And um, it was very sad when he passed away. I think he was he was in a, a road accident in London, 
and some people felt perhaps that was not an accident, but who nobody knows. I remember the a great deal of excitement about this going back to the 1970s, the Pascagoula case, which uh, which attracted worldwide attention. Uh, one of my faculty advisors at the time, Dr. James Harder, was the research director for uh, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, APRO, and he he was doing hypnotic regressions with the people from the Pascagoula case, and uh, he introduced me to Betty Hill, who was another, perhaps uh, the most famous early abductee going back to the 1960s. but how do you think the, uh, the where the field stands today after nearly half or more than half a century, really, of public awareness of this sort of thing? It's in stasis. <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of research going on. Um, people are still having the experiences. And I felt with writing vo- um, Voices from the Cosmos, that would perhaps shed a little bit of comfort to people that um, the ETs were not the, not all of them, some of them are, these evil, horrible creatures, that they are their own people. They have their own likes, dislikes, way of living, way of thinking, uh, thinking about time. Um, They are alien to us, uh, but they consider that they share this earth. So it's you know, it's sort of logical that they, we would encounter them from time to time, and um, you know, on the road, out on the road, or and uh, but of course, there's this other, you know, the underlying uses of humans <laughs> that uh, is the problem. But there, there are still groups. I know Barbara Lamb still works with uh, abductees and does some research and some hypnosis with them, and uh, there are others out there. Uh, who are doing similar things, but very quietly on their own, in their own locations. So there is very little publication now. Well, I think one of the interesting things about your case in particular is that uh, in addition to having had these experiences, you uh, were also gifted intuitively. Uh, you're a talented remote viewer. You've worked as a parapsychology researcher. And, and there are a number of cases, like the PK Man case that I wrote about, or the case of Uri Geller, where, where you, there seems to be a correlation between uh, highly cultivated psychic abilities and UFO contacts. I think so. Um, I don't know what the numbers are. I don't think anybody's actually researched that. But I, I would think that's, that's correct. And I should also think it's come up a couple of times in other interviews that I've done that what a situation this puts the U.S. government in. If, if some sort of alien entities are regularly intervening in the lives of, uh, must be millions of people if we take the uh, figure of one out of 50 uh, as being anywhere close to realistic. Millions of people are having their lives intervened by some sort of alien uh, beings or alien consciousness, and and the U.S. government is basically helpless to do anything about it. And that's probably why they don't do anything about it, because if they were to come out and say, hey, we know this is happening, but we don't know what it is. 
people would be up in arms and say, well, why? Why don't you know what it is and what can you do about it? And there's really nothing that's been formalized to do anything about it. Some researchers like Jacques Vallée and others have pointed to the similarity between the stories of alien contact and stories going back for centuries about gnomes and elves and fairies and, and mythical creatures that interact with human beings and suggesting that th th this could be, uh, it could be that uh, what we now think of as aliens were once described more as spiritual beings or vice versa, that uh, they really are spiritual beings and, and we project upon them the idea that they're aliens. Right. Then there's also the concept that because we're in a technological age, we're now seeing them and interpreting them in a technological um explanation. Whereas in the Middle Ages, perhaps they were more interested in gnomes and mouths. And, um, but there are similarities. And the, um, the Eastern concept um, of um, the jinns, very, very similar. If you read some of the characteristics of the jinns, uh, very similar to the greys. So I would imagine they've been interacting with us for centuries and interpreted in the context of each century. Uh, really, one way to understand alien contact is to pay attention to the literature of uh, shamanism, for example. Shamanism uh, has some of the answers, I think. Uh, I haven't found all the... I did do some training in shamanism, and I haven't found all the answers there. Um, very helpful in lots of other aspects. And I love to go journeying <laughs> and drumming. Um, I drummed at the solstice a few weekends ago, which was very nice. Um, and uh, but each there are no um, modalities that give a full explanation of the I call that the abduction phenomena. Um, I think it's a little bit. It can be described by the medical field in some aspects. The the religions. You know, going back to Ezekiel's wheel, things like that. Um, so there are clues and cues all the way through history. Dr. Angela Thompson-Smith, this has been, once again, a very enlightening discussion. Uh, you are very clearly uh, deeply immersed in the field, and at the same time, you have a, a, a level-headed, balanced approach, which uh, I'm sure our viewers will very much appreciate. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was uh, very interesting. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.